Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. What a grand day. It is a, a nice day. So y'all did something for your moms, I know. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Uh-oh, someone's late. <laughs> uh, too fun. Did you get my note? Okay, good. She got my note. Whew. Romans 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Romans 1 is where we're going to be. We're continuing on, um, not really with the series, but with some things that we need to talk about as a people, as Christian people, and how that affects who you are as a person, how that affects our community, uh, where things are going um, in our culture, and uh, just to address some of those things um, is what we're kind of processing. So in a week or so, we'll talk about what is truth, uh, we'll talk about what is love, we'll talk about some of those things um, as they unfold. I just want to reiterate this, okay? Um, prior to where we are is all the things we talked about, the hope of Jesus Christ, that there is hope only found in him, there is hope only found in the cross of him, uh, the, the reason in which Jesus came, crossed eternity, created all things for himself, to himself, is to redeem a people to himself. And so all that begins and ends at the cross. You and I have a sin story. I do, you do, we all do. And so we are this uh, called out people from that life that he has called us out to save, to be saved, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. So that is our hope. That is what we preach and teach. Like Paul said, Christ and him crucified. That's all we need. He is our sufficiency. He is all of that, right? Amen. Well, there's one. Woohoo! <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> right? Okay, so here's where it starts to, okay, I say we, I struggle, right? Okay, now how do I, how do, I do this in life? How do I live this out? How do I incorporate what I see in culture and what's taking place? How do we, how do we live that out faithfully? And so that's where we're going toward. And I just want to remind us in the background, what's running in the background is there is always, look at me, there is always hope. There is always hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And you just put a period at the end of that. That is the sufficiency that he gives and offers. So Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, there's a caveat to that. But we have to remember, but we live in a fallen world, right? We still have to live here. We have not yet been glorified. Life isn't the way we want it as much as we want it to be. We're not there yet, okay? And so that's where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's always key. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that they, meaning us as human beings, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and became foolish and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore God has given them up. In the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator 
rather than the, uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For women exchanged natural relations of, uh, for those contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, conscience, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew no God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval, give approval to those who practice them. I have to admit to you, in that list of not-so-pleasant things, that's where I belong. I am one of those. I have been one of those, more than one of those. So this morning, what I want to pursue is what happens when a nation runs aground, when it gives up its foundations because of God's wrath. Have you ever been in a situation in your own life where you are so confident, so certain, and granted maybe somewhat cocky, <laughs> that failure was not possible? That was, by the way, every time I went played baseball in high school, every time I went up to bat, that, that was me. Nope, not going to strike out ever. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> but that was the mindset. And that's the mindset you have to have, honestly, when you play and, and pursue those things, which are good things, enjoyable things. But the fact that if you've ever done a task, a job, maybe you've done it over and over, you've done it for so long, you just know it. It just, it just comes to you with always the same exalting, glorious results, right? But then there's that one time when you headed out to do it all over again, so confident, so sure of the results. But unbeknownst to you, something changed. The game had changed. Something or someone some element did or learned something to take the advantage that you once had because you went unnoticed or you just ignored it, maybe. That one time became the last time and failure entered your life. This is a very uh, real scenario, and I want to read that to you. It's in Judges chapter 16. If you don't know Samson and Delilah, Samson was a judge that got appointed over Israel because there was no king in Israel during those moments in history. And so God raised up certain men to oversee, to give instruction, and Samson was just this, this you know, amazing dude. <laughs> I mean, he, he was powerful, physically powerful, supernaturally so. And it caused the Philistines, which, by the way, Israel was supposed to kick out. They weren't supposed to be there by now. And so he is just making himself a nuisance to the other nation. And so he's infatuated with a Philistine woman called Delilah. And she is after him to tell him his secret of where his power comes from. And he gives her all these reasons and has fun with her and, and you know, leads her on and, and that kind of thing to, you know, a, a ways down the road in her frustration you really don't love me is basically, you know, you're, you're doing all this and she's, you know, come on, ladies, right? You, you, you know, right? It's okay. 
It happens. My wife is like, oh, you didn't just go there. Yes, I did. <laughs> but it's true, right? And we get it. Here's what happens. Samson told her all his heart and said, a razor has never come upon my head, for I'm a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And that just means an oath that that's, he was set aside. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. And they came up to her and brought the money that they were going to give her, basically. She, he, she made him sleep on her knees. And then she called the man to shave off his seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she cries out, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go and get out, go out as other times and shake myself free. And here's the sad part of the story. But he did not know the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza. They put him in prison. And he was on this big monster grinding stone in the prison, milling wheat. See, there are principles of being abandoned by God. And much can be learned of just the character of Samson's life. We'll save that for another time. But he was a judge to protect Israel. He was a man who had seemed everything that he had. God had chosen him. He had this great power and authority. But it seemingly ignored the word of God, following God, what God would have him. And he missed God's great blessing on his life in large part. And I want to make a note here, when we talk about God abandoning, we're not talking about salvation here. That's not what we're talking about. But a disciple of God, whether you're walking in him, in the spirit, quenching the spirit, like David, if you will, take not your spirit from me, restore me, renew me, it, it's that. And so there are principles in the Old Testament. Judges 10, 13 says, you have forsaken me, meaning Israel. You've served of the gods, therefore I will save you no more. That's God's judgment. Saul is another character, King Saul, 1 Samuel 20, uh, 15, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you. That's abandonment. Hosea also, Ephraim, meaning Israel, has joined itself to idols. Leave him alone. When they... When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers lo dearly love shame. The idea of shame there is giving honor to what should be dishonorable. It's flipped upon its head. To not know that the Lord has left you, to not know that the Lord has left a nation to be abandoned by God is judgment. And it is an awful thing. Scripture makes that clear. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the Lord. Jesus says this, Luke 12, but I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Israel was continuing to do this, moving away from God, serving lesser gods. And you see this pattern over, over, over again, the principle in the Old Testament. Even in Proverbs, wisdom is personified. And she says this, because you didn't listen to me, you slapped my hand away. When I wanted to help you, you ignored all my instructions and my corrections. I will laugh at you. I will mock you when you, in essence, crash and burn. That's my paraphrase. When you realize your error, 
when you beg me for help, I will not hear you. Why? Why is that happening? Where does this abandonment come from? The other piece of this is just hating the knowledge of God, not listening to his word. So you have that principle. So then you can take that principle and evaluate where we are in culture. So let's do that. Evaluating what God's word says and where we are as a nation currently. Because I truly believe we are under God's righteous judgment. What we are seeing in culture. Now I don't know what specifically will happen as in rebellion of, you know, as a nation. As this nation runs as seemingly as hard as it can away from our biblical foundations of freedom and liberty. But the difference is this. Scripture makes it clear you will either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It's not a question of having a master. It's just a matter of having which one. Who is in authority over you? And that there is the rub. It will be either a slave of sin or a slave to righteousness. And that is the lie from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. That is the lie. Or Genesis chapter 3. rather. That's the lie. Satan is in full swing. You can be like God. You are the authority. Which leads you, and God warns you, this is what leads you into becoming a slave of sin. And listen, this is where I'm going, in essence, as slaves to sin. When the majority of a nation imbibes themselves in that, slaves to sin have no means which to build a society of freedom and liberty that this nation has enjoyed for so long. It's just repression and tyranny. Only those who submit to the gospel, only those, in other words, who submit to the righteousness of Christ, those principles that are enveloped, can and have built a society on freedom and liberty. Only slaves to Christ can see prosperity like that. In other words, what Israel was promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. How do you know? How can I be so sure and confident? Because it actually happened. It's actually happened in history, right? Ours. This nation's history. However, I can see that like the prodigal son, we as a nation have told our father, as Jesus described in that story, Dad, I just wish you were dead. Just give me the money, and I'm going to go live my life. And we have wandered off on a financial and moral bender with only two more chapters basically left in that story to fulfill. One is falling in the pigsty, and two, coming to your right mind again. That's the pattern. And for many a Christian have yet to come to believe or see or understand that God has already Abandon this nation, a nation under his judgment. How can I be so sure? Well, I went to pick up my grandkids at my son's house now in Kansas, no longer in North Carolina, to make that trip. And with three little ones under four, you got to stop at rest stops a lot. <laughs> and when you stop at a rest stop, what do you see? You see a map when you walk in there. And what do you see on the map? You are here, right? It's this reference point to recognize where you are. What's the reference point that you and I have? The reference point that God gives us is his word. That's how I can be so sure. So let me just show you where I think we are. And then, again, remember where we started? Hope. I'll, I'm jumping ahead. but <laughs> Five types of wrath or judgments God has. There's at least five. 
that he pursues throughout the course of history. There is, of course, his eternal wrath. One day we will all face a just and holy God. There's an eschatology or, or an end days type of wrath in his tribulation. There's catastrophic things that have happened in history, right? And the biggest one that we could point to would be Noah. That would be a, a good one. The idea of sowing and reaping, consequences. You reap what you sow. Sow good things, reap good things in, in general. But the one I want to focus on is the abandonment. That's Romans 18, 118. And what we see in that text, there are specific characteristics to look for. Once you see these things, you can know. You don't have to question. You don't have to wonder. You can know where you are. There is this characteristics of this process of abandonment. And it begins in Romans 1.24. It says, God gave them up. The New Living Translation actually uses the word abandon. God's abandoned them. Abandon them to do what? What does he let them go to do? Everything their hearts desire. Zero restraints. No, no, no roadblocks, no slowing down, no nothing. It's just, okay, here you go. You want to pursue this. This is where this goes. You be you. You do you. And that, I believe, is just a pit and a hole that resides in hell, which foundations goes all the way down. Specifically what? Verse 24, vile and degrading things. That's what you're being let go to do. Everything that your mind can think. And the reference there is a sexual reference. It's a sexual revolution. That's step one. When a society tolerates, promotes sexual promiscuity, perversion, adultery, fornication, the building of a billion-dollar porn industry that destroys mostly men's lives, but some women, and tries to justify it to make it normal. Everybody's doing it. It's normal now. It's, it's okay to do. That's the beginning of the end. That's when it starts. Now, you won't know the end because the rest of the characteristics, the principle hasn't shown up yet. But that's when it begins. How long does it take? Hmm, I don't know. 50, 60 years, wouldn't you say? That leads to the second phase. The verses 26 and 27 is in Romans 1. That's the homosexual stage. And then finally, verse 28, the final stage. And this is where I believe we are. It's a thought revolution. The loss of rational thought, of reality, of logic, of morality. Specifically, morality in the knowledge of who God is. They are now controlled by lust, greed, vice of, of any nature, anything you can think of. And this, by the way, is not new, just new to us. And so everything is now corrupted. Even our conscience, the conscience is even corrupted. That part of you that God says in, in uh, Romans 1 where he's written it on your heart to know him. That we are without excuse. We know right from wrong. We know these things. Like your nervous system when you cut yourself. I sliced myself yesterday out at the camp doing the work day. Thank you for everybody that came to did that. And just kind of got cut up, you know, doing some landscaping things. And a little, it's like, it's not like bad. It just... You wash dishes or something, which I rarely do, or something. Um, <laughs> true. But when you, you know, and it burns. It's like, where did that come from? Or the blister or whatever. And it's not like it's, you know, on death's door, but it just hurts. It's the nervous system that lets you know, hey, something's wrong. Same thing with our conscience. But the conscience only works when it's properly informed, when it's rightly understood. 
to love the light, to love the knowledge of God, to love the word, verse 28. In other words, what we talked about last week, to have a biblical worldview. When that is gone, it means to love darkness. And, verse 32, they encourage others to do the same thing. Why? Because we need more people. I feel better when there's more people doing the same thing I am. Look, I'm not the odd one out. You remember junior high? I want more people. I want, I want to build this thing up so I don't feel out of place. And they're surprised when you don't join them in it, but they malign you for having that biblical worldview to love the Lord with the knowledge of God, 1 Peter 4, 4. That's the process. And listen, when those called out ones, those with a biblical worldview, those of you holding fast to the knowledge of God, chosen by God, the remnant of God, the, the hope filled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you and I, when they confront sin, the porn, the adultery, the fornication, all those things, the lawless, the greed, the fleshly passions, confronting false religions or confronting false reality, when that's happening, calling them to repent, calling them to the light, calling them out of darkness, begging them to come to the cross, Saving themselves from this perverse generation, as the scripture says. The clearest sign of God's judgment is when they start attacking you. When the clear biblical distinctions of sin will no longer be tolerated by society. When that society, in other words, calls the distinctions God has made of what is good, what is wrong. That's a clear sign you're under God's wrath. Just think again. Think of Noah. Think of Lot in the book of Genesis. What's the reason this is happening? Why? Verses 18 through 23. The main reason is we don't want to confront God. We suppress the truth. You have to. You just, there's no other option, really. You have to tell yourself there is no God. You have to do this, this uh, mental gymnastics to say there, there's nothing else, and I will look for everything else in the world other than the nature and character of God. So we suppress the truth. That's the start of the whole process. That's the beginning of this, this whole process of being abandoned by God. To not recognize the truth. The undermining of scripture. The word of God. The basis for society's ultimate good. You want to have a great society? Follow scripture. Works every time. Every time. You don't even have to be a Christian. That's not the point. You follow these principles. God has baked it into the system. It will be a blessing to everyone who comes in contact with. But that's been replaced with man's wisdom, which denies the knowledge of God. It denies the Bible. It denies its veracity, its inspiration. It denies its sufficiency, its clarity. And the key to all of it is authority. Talked about this Wednesday night with our junior, senior, high students. That really is the issue, because I ask them, so how many of you like to have authority, you know, or who is your authority? And like, oh, parents. And they're like, okay, what's the problem with that? And it was, I love students. They're awesome. I love chatting with them. It's amazing. Because they're on it so quick. And there's no really inhibitions. They'll just, you know, here it is. Boom. I love that about them. So when it comes to authority, what was their thing? It's not going to be fun for me. <laughs> right? When you think of authority, what do you think of? Usually what? Punishment. What does Scripture say about that, though? So we'll take that. Oh, if there's authority over me, it's just no fun. i got to go do my chores. I remember that. 
We had like three dogs, and you know, my dad would say this, if you would just listen to me and just do a few minutes every day after school, what would I do? Wait till Saturday morning. <laughs> you know what three dogs does to a backyard? Holy mackerel. I'm dragging this, well, I'm dragging this microphone, but I'm dragging, you know, the shovel behind me, spitting and sputtering because it's taken me, you know, all morning and I'm missing my cartoons or whatever, right? It's about authority. And what we do is we go, oh, it's like God is like that. His authority is it's, he's going to suck all the fun out of life. He's, he's going to just do everything, you know, that I can't do. And, and, we, and we work all this stuff in our head and it's the exact opposite. He wants to bless you. He wants to magnify you as you magnify him. As you make much of his life. But the key to it all is authority. And when you suppress the truth, it's just a downward spiral or all the way there. Why? Because Scripture says, Jesus says, your word, he's referring to God, your word is truth, John 17, 17. You know, I don't know how many times you've heard this, but I hear it quite frequently. Well, that's your truth, and I have mine, and they have theirs. Really? How does that, fun- how does that actually work? Right? It may work for a little bit, but it's not working anymore. Because at some point, again... When you're in darkness and you're trying to make a society, they won't like someone like me who says, yeah, but that's wrong, or that's right, that's good, that blesses, that doesn't. And the objection goes, who are you to say, again, that's authority. Well, look at I'm nobody. But what I do know is what God says. That's what I want to stand on. That's the authority I want to be a part of. And you can like me, hate me, it doesn't matter to me. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter at that point because there's only one person I have to give an account of everything I'm doing in this life, and it's not you. The whole issue is authority and who has it, and I'm really clear what Scripture says about this. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Matthew 28, 18, and he's pretty clear about how much all is. The whole issue is God is holding you accountable because he's made you and he's made you to know him. Which, by the way, Romans 1.19, you'll never meet an atheist. There is no such thing, Romans 2.14. They don't exist. They're just truth suppressors. So instead of repenting, instead of coming to the light so their deeds are exposed because they're scared, they're fearful, what if people know? Listen, I don't know your specifics, right? And some of you know mine. But I know without Jesus Christ, we're all simple, right? We're all tied. And there's embarrassment there and there's fear there. But that's the difference about being part of Christ because there's no boasting other than the cross. There's, there's no need to be scared about, oh, I did this and will people like me? Will they associate with me? Yes, in Christ, Yes. Why? Because it all gets left at the cross. That's the hope. It doesn't matter in this list that Paul, there's a bunch of lists in in Scripture. This is one of them in Romans. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what sexual deviancy you're in or whatever. How big you think your sin is or how small you think it is. Again, I shared this with the students. They're so so kind of concerned about, oh, and I picked an easy one. Oh, how many of you lied before? Yeah, I raised my hand too, right? And you're thinking, oh, that's sin. I'm like, no, that's just the result of sin in you. That's how it shows up in your life. 
you're standing on the foundation or the darkness of sin in your life. It, it, it's, not the, it's not the act. You will have consequences for the act. But it's the fact that you're in darkness. Does that make sense? It just shows up in 200 different ways. And when you come to the cross, it is all wiped away clean. And you are forgiven. And there is a place for you here. And I'm jumping ahead, but it's all about worship. And so you end up with this great exchange, is what you end up with. There is this great exchange taking place in Romans. God abandons them to themselves, to their own destruction. That's true of individuals. It's also true of nations. It's a mix of man's ignorance and his arrogance. Rejecting the reality by rejecting God, rejecting his word, worshiping created things, Paul says, rather than the one who created. The greatest form, then, of worship currently going on, it seems to me, in, in a uh, worldly fashion, is we've got to save the planet. In essence, human beings are the cancer that's killing it all, right? That's a false religion. This world is temporary. I'll do a series on that or a sermon on that probably in three or four weeks. Global warning. See, God is going to save this planet. He has a plan for it. And it's specific to him and his timing. And there is nothing man can do except prepare for that. To humble yourself by believing Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, being baptized in his name, living the life and maturing in Christ. Save the planet? And here's the assumptions people make when you have those conversations. Oh, so you, know, you want to destroy the planet? No, I don't want to destroy the planet. That's just dumb. If we all want clean water. I mean, I learned this before global warming was the thing, because when I grew up, it was cold. there was going to be a, another ice age for crying out loud in school. That's what they taught me. But my parents are still, hey, you know, you just don't take that candy wrapper and just chuck it out, you know, down on the playground. You go pick that up. And by the way, go pick that one and that one and that one. <laughs> it, it, the, you know, you take care of things. We are stewards, so you can't go there. But it seems to me to think that man can save the planet, this is profoundly arrogant because you can't even save yourself. See, when man is the center of the theology, Man will be at his worst. When you place you in the center of theology, which all life is based on, you and I will be at our worst. And when God's cup of wrath is full, individually, as a nation, whatever, just like Samson, that one day, it will be poured out. So where is the hope? You're like, wow, Mother's Day is a real downer, Dale. <laughs> Sorry. I hope not. Again, you have to remember the hope that we receive when we, you know, from Resurrection Sunday. What did we talk about last week, the week before? This, dear Christian, beloved, look at me. This is our greatest opportunity today. How? Because you've loved Christ. He is the only hope. He is the only truth that there is. You've been saved by him to know him. And more importantly, he knows your name. Your name has been written down in his book. 
This is not a time to shrink back. This is not a time to hunker down. This is not a time to do anything but turn around and build the foundations that have been broken down. Now, I know some of you are frustrated because you grew up at a time like my parents, 91, right? And, and so they saw some amazing things in this nation. Now it just seems like it's off a cliff and, and what we're doing and what we're pursuing. Now is not the time to shrink back. Now, now is not the time to turn around and, and, and Jesus' analogy when you're plowing your field. You don't turn around to see if the furrows are. I did that once too. The farm I worked on, Everett was, he had the two-bottom plow, old Alice Chalmers. Wanted to learn how to plow. <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> Pick a point. See that tree? Focus on that. And your rows will be straight every time. We are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, baptizing them in his name, Matthew 28. We are to be salt and light, Matthew 5. We are to love one another more and more as the day approaches. So the world who is watching where you live, work, and play sees the gospel permeating your life, John 13 Dear Christian, look at me. You are their only hope. Now is the time to press the word with boldness and grace into the world. Go to Psalms 81 again. We read that this morning. This is the solution. Psalms 81 is the solution. Give justice, oops, not that one, that's 82, sorry. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. You see that's God's heart for you? You may think God's the biggest downer, the biggest whatever, he's just, you know, going to take away all your fun or whatever it is for you. That's not what he's going to do. Oh, you may get different friends and you will get different uh, ways in which to do life. I'll give you an example. When my wife, incredibly awesome, wonderful wife, was working in a coffee shop in Lansing when my son got married, um, <clears throat> we invited the people that the, were at the coffee shop to the wedding. And the reception, there's no alcohol. There was a big Mountain Dew fountain, I think. I don't remember. <laughs> and when she got back to work on Monday, the comments she got from those coworkers, they, they're not Christians. The, the, the report was, we've never seen anybody have so much fun and laugh so hard and enjoy themselves without being drunk. <laughs> like, hey, half is my family all the time. <laughs> this is what we do. We like to laugh. We don't need any stimulus. We just like to laugh and pick on each other. This isn't new. Psalms 81 Verse 12, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. There it is. Now look at, listen to God's heart. This is the heart of the living God for you. Verse 13. It's this pleading. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would, what? Two things. Know his word and walk. It's the same message in scripture. You come into faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. 
You are redeemed. You are saved. Look at from that moment on. I don't whatever your issue, whatever your sin life has been. He is going to work that out of you. It may happen right away. It may take years. It may be a struggle your whole rest of your life. But you are made righteous in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? You don't do good things to make God happy with you at that point. He's already happy with you. He's already redeemed you. What does he want to do? I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. You want to see this nation return? to what, whatever that is you're pining for from history, it begins and ends at the cross. That's what has to happen. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust? Do you trust God? Do you trust His Word? Do you trust the Holy Spirit is working? I'm thinking, well, of course, because we're in church, I have to say yes. <laughs> the gates of hell won't prevail. Maybe you just thought of that in your head real quick. What hinders that? Why do you see anything happening? Why don't you see anything happening? Sure feels like hell is prevailing. I would encourage you to read the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters. This is how it starts. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not listen to me? That's how it starts. He spent. This is a long history of Israel. See, in our sinful presumption of thinking God is not doing anything, which really means, God, you're not doing what I want, when I want, how I want it to fix all this. He is doing. He is judging. In fact, he's judging all the nations, not just this one. He is driving them, each one of them, to the throne of Jesus Christ. And he's asked you and me to be faithful to the end, whatever that may be. And may I say, look in the mirror and ask like King David to see if there is any wicked way in me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Humble yourself before the Lord and repent. I do not know what God has for us as a nation, but I do know the desire of his heart because he has laid it bare at the cross for each one of us to receive. Let me close with this. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not drink feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's God's heart. Don't let this one time be the last time. Repent, and God will relent. There is hope waiting for you. 
hope for you individually, hope for this nation. Pray that it's not too late. But if it is, pray for the courage to make our stand in the truth of Jesus Christ, to be faithful to the end, trusting and hoping in the work and what God is doing. I don't know how this is going to play out, and I'll just share this because I need you to pray. A handful of us met with one of our state representatives this last week, um, Phil Green, and had a good conversation about, okay, this is what we see, this is what we understand in Scripture, what do we do? How do we live this out? So I need you to pray about that. Now, it does it in a microcosm in your own life. You as a mom today, you as a husband, son or daughter, all those things to honor, like the word says, but it shows up in different arenas. And so we need to know what to do because we're going to be hammered with these questions that are coming, that are already here, about truth, about love, about politics, all those things and where you stand and how you respond. And so we need to have an understanding and it's going to take some discernment and some thought and some wisdom on how to navigate these things. And so we've started in trying different things to see maybe where God is leading. So we have this biblical citizenship class that we've been uh, incorporating. And out of that came this meeting last week because conversations were shared. We have a means in which to help people restore their lives, regeneration, to come to terms with maybe an addiction or those kinds of things, to be a blessing to, to people who don't even know Christ, maybe who just lost all hope. Or in your marriage, not that your marriage has to be bad, but re-engage is the same thing. How do we take your marriage from good to great? All of these things in which we can show and demonstrate the nature and character of a God who is offering people hope. And we just need to learn to navigate that here. So I'm asking that you can make that a part of your prayer life. Father, thank you for the hope and the assurance that you've given us the means in which your grace comes to us through the cross, that it is no doing of our own, that we are helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves, and yet you saw through eternity to see us this day. Father, if there is someone here this morning who doesn't know you, has not submitted their life to you, has just held on to their own authority, that they would see that their life has run aground and that judgment is looming over their life. So, Father, I pray that you would transform them through faith in Jesus Christ, that give them the gift of faith, that they would believe in who you are, that they would confess your name as Savior and Lord of their life, submitting to your authority, that you would give them the repentance of sin, that they would hate it, no longer want it in their life, that they would be baptized in your name, that your Spirit would empower them to become light in a dark culture where they can reach people with the glorious gospel, where they live, work, and play. And we can begin to rebuild the foundation of a nation whose foundation is crumbled. God, I pray you give us the courage and the passion to pursue these things, these hard things that will last for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.